If you have a Bible this morning and you would turn and read with us today, um, I feel very burdened this morning and ask that you would be attentive to God's Word as we may do things just a little different today. Look at, uh, we'd like you to turn to the book of John, chapter 3, and we're going to simply read three verses out of John, chapter 3. John, chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 16 and read down to verse 18, some of which um, many of you may be able to quote uh, all or some of these verses John chapter 3, looking at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And that I'll conclude our reading this morning. That's John chapter 3, reading verses 16 through 18. The title of our message this morning is The Simple Gospel Message. The Simple Gospel Message. And I have an audience in my mind that I would like to direct it to, and I'm going to go ahead and point out that audience today. Um, If you are six, seven, or eight years old, will you raise your hand? If you are six, seven, or eight years old, so I need all the attention of all the kids, if you're six, seven, or eight, raise your hand. Okay. If you are nine, ten, or eleven, raise your hand. Okay. If you are 12, 13, or 14, raise your hand. Okay. If you are 15, 16, 17, or 18, raise your hand. Okay, we have a few of all those. All right. So I want your attention this morning if you raised your hand for a few reasons. Number one, perhaps from your, where you sit... Very often what happens on a Sunday morning about this time is that I get up and I start wailing away about a bunch of stuff that sounds big and important but hard to understand. And I remember that very well. And sometimes when preachers preach, I still feel that way. Um, But this morning, I'm going to try the best that I can to talk to you today about why you need to be saved how you can be saved, and what, what we're doing here, what this is so much all about. And as I began to contemplate or think about what is the, the shortest place in the Bible that captures the biggest part of the gospel or the biggest part of the message about being saved, this is the place that my mind went to this morning. You hear about John 3.16, and perhaps that's the first Bible verse that many people learn to quote. And I'm not going to talk about all who's talking here and what they're talking about and all the things surrounding it, but I want to give you a very simple explanation this morning. And so I really ask, if you're a young kid today, 
and you have some curiosity about being saved, what being lost is, why I have certain feelings, all these different things. What, what is this about Jesus and dying on the cross? And why is that so important to everything that we talk about? This morning, my desire is to try to explain to you in short what some of these things are about. And so I'd ask those of you that know the Lord to pray for me today that God would help me to say what he wants. I want to begin this morning and kind of work backwards in our scripture reading. So we read John chapter 3, 16, 17, and 18. But I want to start with verse 18, and then I'm going to go back to verse 17, and then back to verse 16 in our scripture reading this morning. And so here's what verse 18 said. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So this morning, I want you to, if you're a young kid, and you've grown up in church, most of you have, because most of you I know, and I know your families have been here for a long time, from the moment you were born, despite what your mom said when you were born, or your aunt, or your grandma, they would, a lot of times, whenever our children were born, I'd hold them, or I'd hand them to somebody, and they'd say, oh, they're just perfect. And that's not true. Now, obviously, I understand the, the way they're meaning that, and I'm, I'm not picking at that. Um, but the Bible teaches us something about every single person who is born. And that is whenever you were born, or I was born, we are born breaking rules in our hearts. Whatever rules that are set up, there is a desire in our heart to eventually break them. Now, the Bible teaches us that at the center of all of that rule breaking is this desire to think of myself. So, the Bible teaches me that what I need to think about more than myself is I need to consider what God wants and serving Him I need to show love to other people and think about those who are in my family. Perhaps you have a sibling, and maybe you and your sibling don't get along very well. And often, if you look at the reason why you don't get along, it's because you're wanting what you want, and they're wanting what they want, and nobody's willing to budge. And so it creates this, this fight that you often have, this dislike for what that person is doing and what that person is saying. And the Bible says that the moment we are born, that that selfish desire is within us. We want to serve me, and if that sometimes is not, does not benefit other people, that's just the way it is. Now, what the Bible identifies that as is this big word that you only hear in church usually, and that is sin. That at the center of being sinful is thinking about yourself. Well, whenever we do something wrong, whenever I was in school, I'll tell you a little story, and I think I've shared it here before, but I think it fits here. Whenever I was in school, uh, we had this chart. And on this chart, we had to do so much reading. 
And once we accumulated so much reading, we could take so many Tootsie Rolls. And it was kind of the trust but verify policy. Well, generally in school, I was a pretty good kid. And so most of the time, as we got halfway through the year, I found that my teachers would trust me. And so whereas with certain kids, they would trust and then verify, oftentimes I would have the benefit of just being trusted. And I remember in third grade in Mrs. Run's class, when she wasn't looking, as I was picking out those Tootsie Rolls, I took an extra one. And frankly, I was stealing. I knew it was wrong. I did it anyway. I enjoyed it in the moment. But as time went on, it bothered me. Or I felt what this scripture verse called condemned. There was this voice inside of me that was just saying, that's wrong. Now, I knew at this point I was not going to get caught because days had passed. And yet... As I would look over there in the middle of class and I would look at that chart and I would look at those Tootsie Rolls and I knew, I didn't tell anybody around me, but still on the inside, I felt guilty because I knew I had done wrong. Now, what I didn't know then that God has since taught me now is that God designed this world to be that way. God designed you To have what's called a conscience. That conscience helps you to learn what's right and what's wrong. And even sometimes when you don't understand that something is wrong, it's like there's this voice inside of you that says, I shouldn't be doing this. Or we feel guilty and we feel bad. And what the Bible is saying right here in verse 18 is that a person who has never believed in Jesus Christ, stands condemned, guilty. And yet, I'm going to say this, there's kind of a a period of grace. Again, here I go on to getting into big religious words, and I'm not going to do that this morning. There's a period from the time that you're born until a certain time in your life and there's not a specific age. It is different for all of us. But there's a time when God sees your mental ability and your ability to discern or to determine what is right and what is wrong. And God says, yes, you're a sinner. You've done wrong. But I'm not going to hold you responsible for it. Because I realize, in large part, you don't understand what you're doing. Now again, bear with me this morning as I'm trying to make it very simple. You don't fully understand the results of doing right and wrong. And so God says, I'm not going to hold you responsible. What you'll often hear in church is we hear about this time called the age of accountability. Now, admittedly, like many words that are used today in church, that word or that phrase is not found in the Bible anywhere. The age of accountability. But the idea is most certainly found in the Bible. And I think the most clear place that it is found is in the book of Romans, chapter 7, verse 9. Paul says this, 
For I was alive without the law once. But the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Now let's break all that down and, and simplify it here. There was a time whenever you were young, and I remember this very well. I was eight years old when I became responsible before God for my sins. Now again, I, I reiterate, that doesn't mean you're going to be eight. You might be 10 or 12 or 14. That's, that's between God and a person. I was eight years old. And we had just gone through some hard times in life. And so my mind was thinking about all those hard things that we had gone through in life. I would go to church much like this. A church very similar to this. And I would sit and I began to notice around here that we have like an underground candy cartel that exists here in the church. Right? And we had that then. We had Brother Hagen and Brother Key and Brother McWhorter. And they had their pockets And they would come as kids would get in and distribute it. As a matter of fact, this morning, I was given one to give to Sister Reedy. That's how bad the cartel is getting. So I owe you this, Sister Reedy. Um, And I thought about things like that. Candy. That's what I look forward to. I thought about Sunday school. And when the preaching was generally going on, you could find me putting my head on my grandmother's uh, shoulder or flipping through songbooks or making funny faces at my friends that were across the the church, and I would hear the preacher talk, and there were some words that would continuously stick out to me. Words like lost, words like being saved. Whenever the preacher sometimes would talk about hell, I would think, ooh, that sounds like a really bad place. And there were certain concepts and certain words that as I heard those things, they concerned me. And so very often I would, on the way home or perhaps at night, I would ask my mom or I would ask somebody I would trust. I would say, how did you know when you were lost? And then sometimes I would even get a little more personal and I would say, how will I know that I'm lost? And then there would be times where I'd say, well, okay, once you're lost, how do you know when you get saved? And they would give all number of different explanations But there came a a common, very biblical concept that's actually talking about in the book of John chapter 3. And that is this, you'll know. Or in other words, what they were trying to say is this. That's between you and God. But God is kind enough that whenever you're lost, God will show it to you. And in the same sense, when you're saved, Jesus in John chapter 3 gave us the very same thing that he told Nicodemus. He said, the wind blows where it will, and you can hear the sounds thereof, but you can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Otherwise, this, I can't set a time in a moment that say the wind is going to blow right at this moment, because I don't know. I don't know when it's going to stop blowing. But what I do know is that there's going to come a time where the wind is going to blow, and when it does, each person will feel it individually for themselves. And they'll just be aware of it. You'll know. And that's the same message that Jesus was telling to this man who came about wondering, how will I know about being lost and being saved? And Jesus said, like the wind blowing, you'll just know it. So for me, this happened one day when I was... Now, before I get there, this is what it said in verse 9. It says, I was alive without the law once. 
Well, in other words, this. I could come into the house of God and the Bible could be preached and the truth could be spoken and things about doing wrong and doing right and being lost and being saved could be talked about. And it didn't really bother me at all. I was curious about it, but it didn't bother me. But then here's what Paul says. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Or in other words, there comes a time in your life where that word of God goes out, doesn't bother you. And then one day, God through his own power takes the law of God or what we ought to do or not do. And he says, you're now responsible for keeping it. Well, here's the problem with that. You don't keep it. You break it. And because you break it, just like I did after I stole that tetsuro, guess what you feel? Condemned. You feel guilt. You feel sorrow. So here's when this happened to me. I was eight years old. We were going through all these things. I went to the bathroom of my school. And what I would do every day in the third grade is I'd go into this stall. I'd lock the door during our reading time. And as nasty as it is now, I'd get on my knees and I would pray. And I would ask God to help my parents. Because that was the center of all the things that were going on with me. Now, I cannot express with more emphasis that that situation in my family was all-consuming. Or in other words, it affected every area of my life. And yet there came a day that Paul, I believe, is talking about here in verse 9. When as I was down there praying, suddenly, with no explanation, for no reason... Something down deep inside showed me that the biggest problem in my life had nothing to do with that, but had to do with me being lost in my sin. I felt guilt. I knew I had done wrong. And that because I had done wrong, I was guilty before God. Now I'm thankful I had been told that message before that moment happened. Because I kind of at that moment understood a little bit of what was happening. I knew I'm lost without God. And if I die in this state, and here's what Jesus is telling this man, he that believeth not is condemned already. Because I had sinned, because I've done wrong, and now God is holding me responsible for those eight years of my life. God was not holding me responsible for my sin. But there came a moment where God placed upon me the responsibility of my sin. And at that moment, my spiritual eyes were opened and I recognized I stand condemned before God. I have sinned and God is going to hold me responsible for what I have done. What I've learned... Uh, about parenting is sometimes that the actual discipline is not as bad as the anticipation of the discipline. I know we've all experienced that, right? That you've been told that perhaps you've got to meet with your boss and in three days you're going to have that meeting and you have no idea what it's about. And so what begins to happen? First of all, you begin to think of all the bad things that you've done. And then your mind begins to wonder, is there something I'm doing wrong? And you begin to ask around a little bit, and there's this anticipation. There is this 
There's this knowledge that this meeting is coming. And when I have this meeting, I don't know what's going to happen. Now, very often is the case where it's not really a big deal at all, right? And all that worry and all that heartache and all that brokenness is for no reason. And in a similar sense, though different, when God reveals to us that we're lost, there is this dread that comes to be. And my dread of God primarily came, and I can only speak to my, for myself, all, for all people it's different, two times in my, two, uh, in two different circumstances, the dread of God would happen over and over for me. The first one was when I would go to bed every night. Every night, what was common when I was eight, nine, ten years old is that we would turn off the lights. My mom would tuck me into bed. She'd leave the door cracked. I was in a room by myself, and there, was a, there were two windows in my room, one right by my bed. And that's when my mind had quiet, and I would begin to wander. My mind would just begin to wander all over. And somehow, my mind would almost inevitably come back to, where do I stand before God, and if I die, where am I going? Now, what I recognize now is that although it was scary, it was a good thing. It was a good thing. There was another time when that was the case, and it was during church when the preacher was getting done preaching. As I could tell, he was coming to an end. I had... I'm not going to say all the time because sometimes it didn't bother me at all. But there were, these, there were these times where what the preacher was doing was reminding me about the law and the truth and what I had done and what I was responsible for and who God was. And you know whenever you've done something wrong, even though you love your parents, you kind of dread being around them because you've done wrong. And so you try to avoid them because you know if I get in their presence, I'm going to feel bad. I might get punished. And so there was this strange feeling that I had about church. On one hand, I enjoyed the people. On one hand, I enjoyed uh, the various activities that we did. But in the very same way, I just did not like it. There was a discomfort about coming to church, about the preacher preaching. All of that just made me feel uncomfortable. But often what it was, was that there was this voice within saying, you need to make peace with God. I stood condemned and that condemning came from God and what he was trying to do was prompt me or encourage me by that pain to seek after him. You know, pain is a, is a thing that humans avoid, but it's a very good thing very often. Imagine if you couldn't feel pain, how much danger you would be in. Imagine if you couldn't tell whether something was hot or not. What would it do to your skin? Well, you would touch things that were hot and not even know it. The next thing you know, you would begin to function as if, and that would begin to harm your body in ways that could not be corrected. Pain is often this way to push us away from behavior or towards other behavior. And what God often does in the heart of a person within is he allows us to feel pain that we might run to someone who can help us. So here's what I was told, and this gets to verse 17 in our scripture reading. 
For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So here's what would happen. I'd come into church, and in this area right here, when we start to get to the end of a sermon, I'd start to feel a little guilty and bad. And I would do all normal things that all kids do. I'd flip through songbooks. I'd go to the bathroom, try to time it perfectly where I didn't have to stay for the altar call. I would do all these different things, right? Just to avoid the pain, the guilt, the bad feeling that I had within from what was being said. But this verse tells us something so important for you to understand about what God is doing. God said this. He did not send his son into the world to condemn you. But that through him, you might be saved. I want to give you an example. Here's an analogy. Here's a picture I want you to think about to compare this to. I want you to imagine if you went to school one day and you were told that you're going to have a test come at the end of the week. And that test is a very high-stakes test. So whenever I was in school, we had something in Indiana called the I-STEP test. And we had to take it every other year. And the teachers got really, you know, they really focused on it. Now imagine if you were told you had to take a test on the end of of the week. But this test was going to be different than any test you've ever taken. Because at the end of this week, if you took this test and you did not get every question right you're going to be separated from your family and thrown in prison. Never get to see your loved ones again. Never get to experience the freedom of growing up and learning about or or, or doing the things that you love to do, becoming the person you want to become, having children. None of those things would be possible. And so what did you begin to do? Well... That Monday, you began to prepare for the test. Even those that don't study, even procrastinators, even a kid that doesn't care about school, I bet if the stakes were that high, everybody would begin to cram for that test. And so from Monday through Thursday, you and your parents spend all day every day, and you're practicing for this test, and you're trying to get ready for this test. And then Thursday night, you get a message. And that message says this. When you go tomorrow to take the test... Don't write anything on the paper. Just trust me. What? Do what? And so here you've got these two things all night you're thinking about. You think, well, I studied really well. I'm really prepared. I really think I'm going to, I think I'm going to ace it. But this message, my parents have told me that when I get a message from this person that I can always trust this person. They never lie. And anyone who has ever trusted in them has never been disappointed. And so you show up to the next day to the test. And there it is. And, you know, I was always very aware of what was going on in a classroom when a test was being taken. I always noticed the kids who were going really fast and those who were not paying attention. I was always very attentive to who turned it in first. And, and imagine as you start looking around and you start saying, man, every, everybody is just writing frantically. And so you start flipping through the test. And you say, well, I know that answer and I know that answer. and I think I know that answer. And, and you start thinking, you know, I can do pretty good. I probably wouldn't get 100%, but I think I could do pretty good on this test. But that message starts continuing to go back to the back of your mind. Just... Don't answer a thing, just trust me. 
And so that's what you do. You don't write a thing. And your teacher comes up and they begin to pick up all the tests after the bell rings and after all the kids begin to move. And she looks at yours and picks it up and even begins to condemn you. You mean you sat in here for 40 minutes and you didn't do a thing. And yet, you just trusted. See, that's very similar to what Jesus has taught us. Because there's all of these people that tell us in life to live life a certain way. To do certain things. And that if we'll do those things, if we'll achieve success in our education, if we'll be looked upon by all other people as successful, if we'll achieve great things in sports, if we will accumulate a lot of money, that that is what our existence is all about. That's what matters more than anything. And yet there are these people that God has sent into the world and their job is to teach you this. Trust in Jesus Christ. Put all of your faith in him. And if you'll do that, you'll be okay. See, because what Jesus has done that you don't know is this. Or what he has told us is this. And this is what John 3.16 in this analogy is all about. Jesus has come and he took the test. And he passed it perfectly And he's the only person that ever has. And here's what Jesus did when he took the test. He said this, all people who will trust me, put their absolute confidence in me. I will at the top of the test sign their name to where they get credit for my test. And I will take their test and write my name on the top. So that the person who gets punished is me. And the person who gets saved from prison is the person who trusted me. That's the equivalent of what Jesus is saying here in John 3.16. He said this, for God so loves the world. Now that's one of the amazing things about Jesus. About God. He said God loved the world. Everybody. The world doesn't mean the physical world. It means the people. God loves all the people of the world. So much so that he gives the same offer to everyone. He says... What you need to do is not try to be a good person, not strive to keep all the teachings of the Bible, not strive to do all these things that would impress your parents or make them proud of you. What you, not even to seek after pleasing God in that sense, what you need to do is trust what I have already done. What has Jesus done? Well, the Bible teaches us that he has come to this earth and he has lived an absolutely perfect life. Every moment of every day, instead of acting on his selfishness, like we talked about earlier, instead of wanting to do things that would benefit him, perhaps to the harm of other people, Jesus came to this world every moment of every day of his life and he lived perfectly, never sinned, never offended God. He was perfect. And he looked around him. 
He did this before time, but he looked around him and he saw everybody around him is messed up. Just like you sitting in that classroom and you're looking around and you're saying, everybody is trying the best that they can, but they're getting things wrong. They're sinning. They're making mistakes. And you look around and you're seeing all these people do wrong. Jesus Christ saw all the wrong that was being done, yet he himself did nothing wrong. And when the moment came to look on those people who did wrong and punish them and send them into that prison forever to be separated from their families, to be in pain for all of eternity, Jesus said, place upon me the punishment that they deserve and give to them the blessings that I deserve. Oh, it's the great swap. I get God's perfectness and the rewards that come because of it. And he got my sin and the punishment that follows. God said he loved the world so much that he sent somebody to do that for us. There are acts of love that you can show people. I could give you money for your graduation, perhaps. I could give you any number of items that I have But I think we all know that the most valuable things that we have are people, our spouses, our children. And the Bible says this, that he loved the whole entire world so much that he gave up his son to take the punishment for us. So then what does he ask us to do? He tells us right there in verse 16 that whosoever would trust him. Whosoever believeth in him would not have to perish, but would have everlasting life. Jesus died on the cross for you. Your sins, the things that you have done wrong, caused Jesus to go to need to go to the cross. And now here's what he's saying to you. Trust me. I've done the hard part. I've lived the perfect life. I suffered an agonizing death. I rose from the grave and conquered death. And now I am the obtainer. I am the one that has salvation in my hands. And I can distribute it to whomever that I will. And there is one condition that I have set up that a person would come to me and put their entire trust in me, and if they'll trust me above all else in this world, if I am their only hope at that moment, I will give them salvation. That's the message of the gospel this morning. If you're here and you're a kid today, I want you to know this. You might be in that what we refer to our boys as this period of safety. You're safe. God is not hold, does not hold you responsible for your sins, but there's coming a day that he will. You don't have to rush it. You don't have to wonder about it. parents. You don't have to force it on them. None of that has to happen. God can take care of that. There are some things we leave to God's prerogative, his decisions. That's one of those. They can, we can, they can ask us questions, and we can do the best we can to answer those questions. But let us never try to stack the deck one way or the other. Let us never try to push them towards being lost or towards being saved or away from being lost or away from being saved. All we try to do is share with them simply, here's what the Bible says, and here's how I experience that truth in the Word. 
But there will come a day, and I want you to hear this if you're 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. If you're in this range, and I, I just throw those numbers out there, you may have no guilt about your sin, but realize there is coming a day where you will. And God will hold you responsible for your sin. And let me at that moment give you a piece of advice. When you begin to feel the guilt of sin, condemned, heavy weighted, like you've done something to offend God. Listen to me today. It does not matter where you're at, who you're around, what they're doing. At that moment, realize that there is something between you and God that is the most important thing that a person can ever get right. And what God wants you to do is seek him until you make peace with him. At that moment, forget about everything else in life. That moment I was lost in that little bathroom, I just kind of lost sight of everything. And I just began to pray. And I got scared. I ran out. It's one of the things I love about having a school here at our church. Because it's so personal to me. I was at school. I ran to my teacher who knew nothing of what I was talking about. And she had me go in and sit with the little kids and do what we were trying to do. Well, in the meantime, I began to push that stuff away. And Satan began to convince me, you know, don't, don't worry about it. You'll be all right. Listen to me. The moment you become lost, I don't care if you get in trouble at school. I don't care if your parents don't understand. Right then and there, trust that Jesus Christ died for your sins and will save you from perishing for all of eternity. Put your faith in him. People have tried to make it easy because what they don't like is seeing people in anguish and in pain. And so, here's one thing to guard against if you're a young kid. You may go to a church camp. I don't, though Ray me is not this way, but you may go to some church, you may go to church with a friend someday. Your parents may decide to take you somewhere else. And there might be this preacher that, you know, wears a suit and a tie, looks a lot better than I am, and, and speaks a lot better than I do, and, and maybe has this, makes you feel very comfortable. And they'll say, you know, come up here and say you believe in Jesus Christ, and that he's forgiven you, and then you're okay. And so you feel this pain, and then this person that's in a, a position of authority, like a teacher or a preacher or a parent, says, well, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Let me tell you this morning, God is the only one who can do that. That's it. God is the only one, because here, listen, you've offended him. I can't forgive you for what you've done to him. God can. And so what do you do? You pray. I've told this church before, my dad was lost for less than one minute of his whole life. He lived for 61 years before he died. He was lost for less than one minute. The moment he felt convicted was at the end of the service when they gave an altar call. And his heart was pounding out of his chest that he was lost and stand condemned before God. And at that moment, he would always just say, I just wanted him more than anything. And all I knew is I stood out in the aisle and I started walking towards the altar. And by the time I hit the pew, God had saved me. God has the power to do that with everybody. Some people doesn't. I didn't, that didn't happen to me. Right? Because I'm just going to be honest with you this morning. Very often when I would come to pray, 
my mind was a lot of other places. I was thinking about the people who were there. I was thinking about what people were thinking about me. I was thinking about the clock and whether people were getting annoyed. I was thinking about, I would look out under me and I I would look at different people and say, okay, this person's up here, but this person's not. Am I the only person holding up the clock? Did everybody just staring at me? Sometimes I think about the songs. Sometimes I think about dinner and what we were doing for lunch. So I I would have my mind all over the place sometimes. And I recognize now I was not putting my full trust in Christ because I was thinking on all other things. But there came a day, and you'll hear this in many people's testimony, where you just forget about the world. And suddenly, it is you and God. And everything else is gone. And God helps you to just trust Him, that it is Him alone Though all people may be striving for different things as that analogy of people taking the test and you don't fully understand what's going on, but you're saying, Lord, I just want you more than anything else. And you surrender your will to him. And in a moment, something happened. Now, I'll close. The very end of verse 16, it says this, but have everlasting life. He gave his son that we might not perish, but have everlasting life. I was down at the altar at Bethel Church. We had a pew up front, and I was towards this side of that end of the pew. And I was praying, and I had been up there dozens of times before. And to be honest, I don't, I don't remember my pastor or my mom, who were the two biggest religious influences on me, really talking to me much about what I prayed about. They just kind of left me alone. Even at home, even after church, they just kind of just left me alone. And I remember going up there, and bear with me this morning, there was a gentleman that came up that had asked me to go pray. It was the last, last day of revival, and his name was Barry Hagen, and he had me, asked me to come forward. And I, I liked Barry. That's the only reason I went forward that day. And I got on my knees, and I began to pray, and I was distracted, thinking about everything else. And then there was a song that came on, so to, to Sister Ashley's point, you know, it's, it's wonderful when the Lord leads. It doesn't always happen. But it's wonderful when the Lord gives you a prompting, even in a situation like being a song leader. What a friend we have in Jesus. What that song leader didn't know is that one of the most traumatic things about what happened to me is one day we were whisked away from school. Actually just went back there this last week to that school that I was taken away from. And one day in the middle of a break, we just left and moved to Indiana, a place I'd never been before. And I always thought about my friend James back back in Tennessee. I never got to say goodbye to him. And always as a kid bothered me. And I would look for friends everywhere else, couldn't find one. And I would think at night, I just wish I had my friend James. And what a friend we have in Jesus came on. And hear me please, if you're a young person, I lost sight of everything in this world for the first time I can remember. Suddenly, it's like God was speaking right to me. I didn't know who was praying next to me. I didn't know what time it was, and I didn't care. And God, in that moment, you know, you have these thoughts, and and sometimes, you know, I'm an overthinker. Even when I was a kid, I was an overthinker. Wanda, you mentioned that this morning, of thinking too much. that's, That's me. But you know, when God intervenes, he's able to even peel back those natural parts of our personality that just rise up. And suddenly, I wasn't thinking about anything. 
except God can be that friend that I need. I think of the scripture in Peter where it says, cast all your cares upon him for he cares cares for you. And in that moment, it was no words that I said, but it was the surrender of my heart that God, you have to be my all. Something happened. I mean, something happened. All of a sudden, I, I, now, please hear me, I could not pray to be saved anymore. It felt so foolish to pray, Lord, please save me. Because what kept coming back to me was, and it wasn't even this voice in my head, it just, it felt silly to say, Lord, save me. And so I looked up, and for me, and, and, and I remember not understanding this as a kid because when people would describe salvation in the moment it happened, it always to me as a kid sounded like fireworks. You know, I remember we had this, this, this gentleman at our church and, and, and he would talk about, you know, just he got saved and he started shouting and running all through. And, and then you'd hear people testify. And I especially felt like the preacher was guilty of this. The preachers that would come and preach is they made it sound this explosive thing. When I got saved, it was quite the opposite. You see, because for me, it was turmoil that I lived in. It was fireworks. It was pain. It was all these things that were happening when conviction, when the law would come, I just felt all of these things. And at the moment God saved me, it was just peace. It was just peace. And it's like I would try to pray. I imagine somebody having a weight that is crushing them and then it's removed. Wouldn't it feel silly to keep on saying, please take it off my back? What do you mean, please? It's, it's, you know it's gone. You, more than anybody else, know that the weight is gone. That's what salvation for me was like. I knew something had happened. Now I look back in the scriptures and there's all of these things that would be indicators in the moment that God saved somebody. But here's what I'll tell you. You'll know it. There's a knowledge that something has happened in this moment. And I looked up and I said, I think I just got saved. And they said, well, you can't think, you got to know. And I got down and for whatever reason, I just thought I got to keep on praying to be saved. And so I just kept on and I would just kind of smile and think, I don't need to say this anymore. And I just got up and I said, no, I got saved. I know I got saved. There was an awareness within. And I told other people this morning, wherever you're at as a young person, I want you to know that at the core of what you need to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. When you feel God calling you to himself, there are some kids who are are parent pleasers. They're parent pleasers. There's nothing wrong with wanting to please your parents. That's a good thing. God wants this. It tells us one of the Ten Commandments is to be to honor our parents and to obey our parents. But there comes a moment where it's out of your parents' hands and you've got to forget about your parents. It's between you and the Lord. Today, that's, if you're lost and you feel God putting a weight of guilt upon you, Seek God until you find Him. Don't wait. 
Let me, let me tell you this, and I'm done. There are people, and there is this being that's full-time job, maximizing all the powers that he has, is to prevent you from being saved. And the longer you put it off, and you say, I'll deal with it later, I'll deal with it later, the more room and opportunity it gives him to affect you. My prayer this morning is that if you've learned, if God has showed you that you don't know him, seek after him until you've made peace with him.